It's book fair time. Time to celebrate the importance of reading. Why is this so important? Because reading for fun is a chance for children to strengthen their reading skills. Kids are sent to practice so they can improve skills like soccer, dance, self-defense, and music. So why not reading? The fact is, reading is the most important skill a child can learn. Children with good reading skills will be more successful in school and in life. Doesn't it make sense that if we want children to become good at reading, they need to practice reading? That's where our Scholastic Book Fair comes in. The Book Fair makes reading fun, giving kids the opportunity to find and choose the books they want to read. When children choose their books, they're much more likely to finish them. And this, of course, results in more reading practice, which leads to improved reading skills. Educators know that kids with good reading skills develop expanded vocabularies, a greater knowledge of the world, and stronger thinking skills. We hope you'll support our book fair and help your children build a collection of books at home that they can read alone or share with you. Your participation also helps get more books into our school and classroom libraries for all kids to enjoy. There came an event during every year of your middle school childhood. An event that had you chomping at the bit, circling images on a three-page pamphlet that you absolutely needed to have. And for once, your parents were eager to oblige your request. Because knowledge is power. Yes, it is. And the power was at your fingertips for once. This is the story of the Scholastic Book Fair. This is Toys for Us. All of my best friends are toys. Oh boy, all of my best friends are toys. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, all of my best friends are toys. Hello. Hi. And welcome back to the Toys R Us podcast. Your weekly journey into the past to discover the history of a piece of your childhood that left an undeniable mark, whether you remember it or not. This week, however, we will be discussing the history of something that is just completely fucking unforgettable. Yeah. And the first of five episodes of September, which we are calling Scholastic September, we have something big to kick it off. My name is Richard Hunt. And with me, as always, is my cousin and co-host, Brian Muth. Hey, humans. Brian, this week, we will be discovering the history of the Scholastic Book Fair. Uh, you know what? This is... A biggie. It's a biggie. A like, biggie. man. The book fair was huge. It's, it's like the genesis of fucking hype mode. It really was. You know, like, you're like, oh, oh man. fuck. Just the whole atmosphere. There's a... I'm, I'm just... I know you can't see because, you know, we're not on film, but I'm nodding my head. Yes, yeah, yeah. just... The memory's just flooding back, you know? It's just... That's really, like, what it is, too. It's 100%, like... And it's not even, like, rose-tinted nostalgia. No, because it's, it, it's pure. It, you remember it exactly how it is, and that's... There's, there's no just, like... Because a lot of situations, you remember things more fondly than they mm -hmm. actually were, yeah. right? This happens, like, right as you're about to graduate, or, like, if you're quitting a job, or, mm -hmm. like, the end of a relationship, you, get, you start to get these, like, well, maybe things weren't so bad. Yeah. And then it's like, no, um, they were fucking horrible. Yeah. 
you got out when you got out for a reason. Yeah. But with the book fair, dude, that's just like there was no bigger hype than getting that fucking pamphlet. Man. You're like, oh fuck yes, Captain Underpants, motherfucker. It was like uh, it was right up there with like, you know, Christmas catalogs. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but the hype was real. It really was. You you knew that whatever fucking your your gym or like mm-hmm. yeah, it was your art room or yep. the fucking music room, they would empty it out. Mm-hmm. Fill it up with fucking just shelves and shelves of books, and not just books, fucking spy gadgets and posters, fucking and scented erasers, and yeah, those pencils, pencils that are like wiggly, uh huh, just fucking slap bracelets, yeah, you know, slap like bracelets, the fucking Guinness book, yeah, every Ripley's every year, or not. Like, yeah, oh yeah, Ripley's too, fuck man, you you knew you were in for some serious shit, yeah, you really were. You're like, oh my fucking god! Wait, what is that? And you, they give you, you got some money. You fucking finagled your money somehow. And seeing Lowell, they double dipped. Mm. Like, not only did we get it at high in in the schools, mm-hmm. we got it at the library too. Oh, our library had a Scholastic Book Shit. Fair too. That's fucking awesome. Twice a year. Damn. Yeah. It's it just was, it one of these intense. things, man. Where it's like. They still do them today. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no reason for them to not. Yeah, I'm sure very little has changed. Because like, look at, look at like most of the people that read digital books are adults. Yeah. And audiobooks, those are adults. Like, yeah. physical books still belong to children. Yeah. You know, like there's nothing that's going to take that away. No. Even with like all the, like the, the tablets and shit that they have now, like. It's still the hype. It'll it'll never surpass holding a book in your hand. No, never. No matter what else the device can do that you're right. reading on, nothing will ever replace. There, there's no comparison. The turning of a page. Right. Especially think to, think back to like scary stories to tell in the dark. Mm-hmm. That was king shit, man. If, if you, you bought that, <laughs> dude, you I, were the king. And then like if you turn if you turn a digital page, you're just sliding it to the left. Yeah. It doesn't have the same it's not like, like scare factor, right? And fuck, if you th- you could throw a book down, yeah, <laughs> you throw your tablet down, that thing's yeah. probably gone, busted. But you you fucking turn the page on a scary stories, tell them dark book, and you throw it on the ground because it scared the shit out of you. You're gonna pick that motherfucker up, and it's gonna be no worse for the wear. And not only that, but you also run the risk of, like, tertiary trauma. Yes. To, to like, when you throw the book, it opens up to an illustration. Yes. It's, like, worse than what you yes. already saw. Yeah. You're just like, fuck! Yeah. You're like, oh, God, the haunted house drums. No, no, no. No, no, you no, no, no. throw no. it down, and it opens to Harold just fucking mm-hmm, staring just at you with those dead eyes. You're like, no! No, 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 no. Yeah. All that means Evacuate, like, burn the house down. Burn it all down, baby. You ready to open the book into the past? I'm ready to open up a book fair whoop-ass on this. Let's do it. Every story needs an origin. So before we get to the book fair itself, we need to discover the history of Scholastic in and of itself. Okay. So we start our story in 1920. Wow. Yeah. We're going way back for way this back. We're going back to the... Fucking Gatsby era. Yeah. Sport. Nice. Uh, where we meet up with a man named Maurice 
Robbie Robinson. He knew, even as a young man, that he wanted to be a publisher. After serving as the editor of his high school paper in Wilkinsburg, Pennsylvania, he went on to Dartmouth College, where he edited the Daily Dartmouth. Hmm. After graduating in 1920, he created the first issues of the Western Pennsylvania Scholastic in the office of his mother's sewing room. (laughs) Robinson, who once said, I cannot recall a day where I did not look forward to tackling the work that was waiting for me in my office, built steadily on the relationship with teachers and the trusted scholastic name forged by his magazines in their classrooms. He sold his original copies for five cents a pop. With with inflation uh, is about 65 cents today. That's not bad. On the cover of the first issue of his magazine, publisher M.R.R. Robinson promised his readers more. Only four pages? No. Next week and every week thereafter, the Scholastic will have eight pages. Damn, doubling up. And he kept his promise. Following its initial publication on October 22, 1920, the Western Pennsylvania Scholastic did grow. First, the promised eight pages, and eventually to become the cornerstone of the company that is now the world's largest publisher and distributor of children's books, and a leading provider of print and digital education both uh, programs, both domestically and internationally. That's fucking intense. It really is. I mean, talk about building an empire from No nothing. shit. From a four-page fucking pamphlet. Right. To just uh, an empire. A juggernaut. Yeah. The following year, Robinson arranged for office space in Pittsburgh, and hired a clerk to serve as office manager and assistant editor. To finance the publication of the Western Pennsylvania Scholastic, Robinson continued to work at various jobs in public relations. Although the paper did not turn a profit, during the 1921-1922 to school year, its circulation reached 4,000. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, that kind of makes sense. you gotta, yeah. you got to build the, the readership yeah. first before the money starts rolling in. Exactly. Uh, in 1992, Robinson decided, decided to widen the scope of his student newspaper. Over the summer, he distributed a brochure describing the proposed publication, The Scholastic, to those present at the National Education Association Convention in Boston. The publication's new format was to resemble that of a magazine and include articles relevant to the classroom work in English, social studies, science, and foreign languages. Baller. Preparing for increased business, Robinson hired a circulation manager incorporated and incorporated his venture as the Scholastic Publishing Company. The first issue of the Scholastic, which billed itself as the National High School Bi-Weekly, was published on September 16, 1922, and sold for 15 cents per copy. To stimulate circulation, sell advertising space, and generate copy of interest to students across the nation, Robinson assembled an advisory board of high school teachers and administrators and a staff to sell ads and push subscriptions to teachers and their students. That's smart. Moreover, he began selling shares of uh, Scholastic to raise funds. Like stocks. Oh, okay. Which is a fucking smart idea. Yeah, that's a great way to build capital. I mean... It's still one of these things that just works, you know? Especially if you get the community involved. Yeah, absolutely. In 1924, Scholastic began to sponsor the Scholastic Creative Writing Awards, as well as a contest to provide cover designs by high school art students, programs that proved extremely popular. I think they still do that. Yeah, they do. As a result of these activities, circulation of the Scholastic reached 33,000 by the spring of 1925. Kaboom! A figure that would nearly double by the end of the decade. 
Despite the publication's popularity, Scholastic continued to struggle financially, never turning a profit in the 1920s. Moreover, its seasonal distribution generated no income during the summer months. Because <laughs> everybody's out of school, they're yeah. like, I don't want to read. Yeah. But, like, he's still, like, doing it because he loves doing it, right. you know, which helps. Right. Um. In the early months of 1929, Robinson acquired a weekly social studies periodical, The World Review, for which he paid with um, Scholastic stock. When the stock market oh, crashed, he's very smart. Dude, that's like, like next level barter. Yeah. When the stock market crashed in October, he was able to sell this property to a competitor, giving his company a much-needed infusion of cash. Boom! Shortly thereafter, Scholastic acquired the children's magazine St. Nicholas, and the company's name was Scholastic, was changed to Scholastic St. Nicholas Corporation. Hmm. Continuing financial strains brought on by the Great Depression, however, prompted Robinson to seek the economic resources of another publishing firm. And during the 1931 to 1932 school year, Scholastic entered into a joint adventure with competitor American Education Press, in which Scholastic gained control of four publications, The Magazine World, World News, Current Literature, and Loose Leaf Current Topics. Temporarily bolstered by increased business, Scholastic opened offices on East 44th Street, New York, and launched another new publication, Scholastic Coach. Ooh. In April 1932, Scholastic bought out American Education Press, and two months later, the company's name was changed to Scholastic Corporation, as plans were made to sell St. Nicholas before the end of the year. (laughs) By the end of fall 1932, circulation of the company's publications had dropped sharply, and salary cuts for all staff staff members at Scholastic were necessary. Focusing on the potential of its original publication, The Scholastic, Robinson cut costs by doing away with its expensive cover art and printing the entire magazine on less expensive paper. Hoping to increase revenues, he also put the Scholastic on a weekly publication schedule. Scholastic reported slight gains in circulation in 1934 and 1935, and the following year, the company reported its first annual profit ever, $2,400. A magazine for junior high school readers entitled Junior Scholastic was introduced during this time, and the company's underpaid staff received salary increases. By the spring of 1938, however, the circulation of the mainstay Scholastic, which eventually became known as Senior Scholastic, to distinguish it from its junior counterpart, had dropped uh, quite a bit. And projections for the success of Junior Scholastic proved overly optimistic. (laughs) Well, you know, you take shots and fucking miss whatever. Yeah, but that's that's the thing. It's like all the shots that they've shot so far have kind of hit the mark pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, you're bound to stumble every once in a while. Right, Right. and it took a while to gain a profit, but you fucking did it. But, yeah. I mean, they're doing pretty alright so far. Yeah. Consequently, I mean, they're still around, too. So They are, yeah. Robinson was forced to suspend payment of his staff for a month. Ooh. The losses were attributed, in part, to the fact that many scholastic publications came under the scrutiny of disapproving parents and politicians during this time. <laughs> Facing charges that the material was unsuitable for young people, some schools were forced to ban scholastic magazines, and two widely politicized... Er, 
two widely publicized cases in Washington, D.C. in 1936 and in Topeka, Kansas in 1938, Senior Scholastic was accused of promoting communism. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they were accused of promoting communism, whereas their story is literally that of the American dream. Right. (laughs) You assholes. You're cracking down on the wrong people. Really? In the early 1940s, Scholastic's two principal stockholders, hoping to recoup their investment, sought a buyer for the company. When no suitable offers were forthcoming, they brought in an outside management consultant to evaluate Scholastic's operations. The study was completed in 1941 and recommended that the company either be liquidated or that Robinson be replaced as its head. Damn. Instead, however, Scholastic backers agreed to finance the company on a long-term basis, provided some economic... Some economizing measures were taken. At the onset of World War II, Scholastic introduced a new magazine devoted to current events. Called hashtag fuck Nazis. <laughs> World Week. Hmm. World Week was first published in September 1942 and was promoted as the new all-social studies classroom magazine created to meet your wartime teaching requirements. It's hmm. a fucking mouthful. Then, yeah. For sure. The new All Social Studies Classroom magazine graded to meet your wartime teaching requirements. <laughs> Alright. Tells you how to spot some <sighs> of those filthy Nazis. Hey, you over there. Do you like Adolf? You're a Nazi. <laughs> it's like, okay. It's like, oh, okay. Uh, easy there now, it's okay. <laughs> it's cool. No, fuck you. And fuck Nazis. <laughs> and fuck your mother too. When wartime rationing of paper went into effect on January 1st, 1943, however, Scholastic was forced to produce thinner publications and turn down subscribers. After the war, Scholastic moved to expand its circulation and the number of titles it offered. In 1946, Scholastic teacher Practical English and Prep were introduced. Two years later, Literary Cavalcade um, for that high school... Like fun, literary it cavalcade. does. I bought a soda last night just because it, it, it was like one of these craft sodas. Yeah. And like in the middle was the slogan and it said, for vim and vigor. And I'm like, hmm. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's right. that's nice. Um, Sounds like a Bioshock reference. Uh, right. Right. <laughs> Two years later, uh, yeah, literally Cavalcade was um, added and it was for high school English teachers. Um as was the Teenage Book Club, a joint endeavor with Pocket Books formed to market newly available paperback books to young people in school. That's baller. It marks Scholastic's entry into highly into the highly successful book club business, which grew over the next 50 years to include 11 book clubs serving preschool through junior high school students. Dude. To boost circulation, company executives divided up their sales territory into 180 Scholastic districts. Hiring part-time sales staff, referred to as the resident representatives, to work on commission in each district. By 1951, Scholastic was able to pay a dividend on its stock for the first time. Which is nice. Fuck yeah. Took a long time, but fuck, man. You know what? They didn't, he didn't give up. No, that's that's the kind of tenacity you don't really see much today. Right. Problems concerning the political views reflected in the Scholastic publications resurfaced in the late 40s and 50s. In 1948, the city of Birmingham, Alabama, issued a ban on senior Scholastic finding articles advocating racial equality unacceptable. Oh, damn. Oh, yeah. Gotta, what? Alabama's racist? 
Oh my god. Jeez. No. It's terrible. Yeah, no. By the time you hear the sirens, it's already too late. Yeah. Uh, this ban was lifted three years later. Perhaps, perhaps the most widespread controversy surrounding Scholastic Publications was when Senator Joseph McCarthy and others serving on the House Committee of Un-American Activities began a program of accusing American citizens of communist affiliations. <laughs> I knew this would come in handy someday. Oh my God. Basically. Oh God, here it comes again. Ah! Damn commies. If you're anything like me, you listen to more podcasts than you know what to do with. If you want to be even more like me, well, you should download the Podcoin app. It's a free and very user-friendly app that pays you to listen to podcasts. You get paid in Podcoins, which you can do one of two things with. Put it towards charities, they have an entire full list. Or buy yourself a gift card from Target, Dunkin' Donuts, Starbucks, Amazon, the list goes on and on. So what are you waiting for? Download the Podcoin app today and use the code TOYSWERUS to get yourself 300 extra Podcoins. And now, back to the show. In 1952, a Scholastic editor was ordered to explain his involvement 20 years prior with a short-lived youth magazine under suspicion of promoting communist sympathies. Jeez. While he did so satisfactorily and was exonerated, several similar charges were leveled against Scholastic over the next few years. By the end of the decade, Scholastic had... Uh, added several new publications to its roster, including the Practical Home Economics, acquired in 1952, and the Junior American Citizen, which was renamed Newstime. Student book clubs were proving successful, and Scholastic added two new book clubs, the Arrow Book Club, which still fucking exists, and the Campus Book Club. The growth of Scholastic student book club operations created the need for a warehouse to hold goods for shipping. In 1959, the company completed the construction of such a facility in Inglewood Cliffs, New Jersey. 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 During the 1960s, Scholastic explored new markets, including two new book clubs for young children, Lucky and Seesaw, adding adding 13 new periodicals to the line. Furthermore, the company began publishing various instructional materials and books, including a series of books adapted for different age levels intended to develop reading skills and introduce young people to short stories and poetry. That is wild. It really is. I mean, like, they just, like, literally just keep adding to the stable. Yeah, they're like, okay, you got a younger age group? That's fine. We're fucking hitting it, too. We got something for this. You got an older age group? All right, motherfucker, bet. We got this. In 1962, the World Affairs Multi-Text Series was offered for use in social study classes, and a series of arithmetic books were promoted for individual study at home. So now they're like, oh, you want to learn but not be in school, motherfucker? Bet. (laughs) It's like, oh, yeah, we're going to teach you at home now, too. (laughs) That's how you be, motherfucker. Yay, yay. The company expanded internationally during the 1960s after opening its first international subsidiary in Scholastic Canada in 1957. Scholastic United Kingdom and Scholastic New Zealand were established in 1964, followed by Scholastic Australia in 1968. In 1965, Scholastic introduced its hardcover book publishing division, the Four Winds Press. 
This unit eventually became central to Scholastic's library and trade division, which marketed publications to libraries and book wholesalers and distributed a new line of Scholastic slash Folkway records. Damn. So now they're like, you want some fucking audio, motherfucker? It's like, we'll give you some records, too. Spin it, bitch. Yep. By 1968, a series of short films entitled Tout la Bande had been designed for instruction to the French language. Ooh. So it's like, oh, communists, huh? Wee <laughs> wee. Oui, oui. You want to learn some motherfucking French, son? Uh-huh. Oh. The same year, the company opened a book distribution faculty, no, facility in Jefferson City, Missouri, that would become its national distribution center with 2,000 employees and 1.5 million square feet of warehouse and Holy office space. Holy shit. That's a fucking That's lot. That's a ton. The company continued to expand its audiovisual offerings in the 1970s, introducing Enrichment Records, art and man film strips, which supplemented a scholastic periodical published under the direction of National Gallery of Art, Bill Russell's basketball films, Clifford film strips, and Margaret Court instructional films. Another area of concentration at Scholastic during this time reflected the country's increased awareness for a need of remedial reading instruction at an all-age levels. For those students regarded as slow learners, Scholastic offered several textbook programs and magazines, some of which featured easy-to-read articles and stories that would appeal to older students. Which, again, is like, oh, you can't read, motherfucker? Yeah, it's like, oh, we'll make you read. We'll fucking help you. We will take your hand and guide you. Available exclusively at the Derek Zoolander Center for kids who oh can't read and want to learn how to do other stuff good, too. That's fucking hilarious. <laughs> in addition to exploring a new and growing market, such material helped offset the declining popularity of senior Scholastic. Scholastic stock was first offered to the public through the New York Stock Exchange in 1969, and the 70s began a period of steady financial growth at Scholastic. With the scope and complexity of its operation expanding, the company underwent several corporate several corporate organiza- reorganizations in the 1970s. In 1971, a school division was created to oversee operations involving the company's books and clubs or book clubs and magazines. Hmm. This division was headed by M. Richard Robinson Jr., son of the company's founder. And four years later, Robinson took over as the president of the company initiating another period of reorganization. Richard Dick Robinson would continue to lead the company for the next several decades after being named Chief Executive Executive Officer, CEO, in 1975, and Chairman in 1982, as his father passed away on February 9th, 1982, at the ripe old age of 86. Wow, he had a good run. He did a whole bunch of fucking shit in those 86 years, dude. Dude, he packed him in. From a four-page magazine. Yeah, to a fucking publishing empire? Just Fuck, dude. fucking empire is, I think, putting it lightly. Yeah. Um, Scholastic Production was formed in 1978 to provide the company with the capability of prote- producing children's television series, feature films, home videos, and multimedia pro- products based on its popular book characters. Man, going hard in the paint. <laughs> really? Renamed Scholastic Entertainment in 1998, the division would be an important source of revenue during the 1990s. In 1982, the new media division was launched to focus on educational software. By 1980, budget cuts and declining school enrollment rates posed a challenge to Scholastic. 
unable to raise prices to rapidly uh, to meet the rapidly increasing cost of publication, the company saw its revenues decline. <laughs> to offset this trend, the company decided to invest more than five million to enter the highly competitive textbook market. Building on the instructional materials it first offered in 1961. Within two years, however, the venture had failed to provide the expected returns, and the company resumed its focus on supplementary educational materials instead. Mm. But you know what? That's how you fucking innovate, is like you try different things, you know? You You don't just stay set in one way. Yeah, I mean, if you don't, nothing venture, nothing gained, right? Case in point, we started as toys. Yeah. Yeah. And somewhere around, like, I want to say, like, episode 13 or something, yeah. we realized, you know what? Let's, toys let's is loose. Nostalgia. Yes. yes. Toys they, I mean, is loose. Yeah. Because think about it, really. Toys are Us sold books. They sold movies. They, they sold, sold video, video games. games. So. Board games. Realistically. They, they I mean. We're not too far from the course there. No. Not terribly at all. The company entered the book fair business by acquiring California book, California school book fairs in 1981. Book fairs were typically run by parents and teachers in schools and offered Scholastic another distribution channel. They proved so successful that the Scholastic went national by acquiring Great American Book Fairs in 1983. Yeah. By the 90s, Scholastic Book Fairs was the largest children's book fair operation in the United States. Rightfully so. Yeah, like the... <laughs> Uh, during the 1980s, Scholastic also explored the bludgeoning, or <laughs> burgeoning, <laughs> bludgeoning, the burgeoning market for educational material related to computers, introducing electronic learning and teaching in computers magazine to help teachers with new technologies in the classroom. It's definitely smart to get ahead of it like that. How in the fucking 80s? Yeah, you're yeah. way ahead of it. The company also launched its first consumer magazine, Family Computing, a line of software for children entitled WizWare. And a magazine on disc called Microzine. <laughs> which is better than Microfish. Yeah. That didn't make any fucking sense to me. Yeah, I, d- I never understood that. Like, wh- where? How? Why? There's a, there's a lot of a lot of ins and outs, a lot of what have yous. Microfish. And it's not. A, it's spelled like F I S C H or something. Right? Yeah, F I F I C H E. Oh, yeah, like, still. I want to well, see. What the hell is a regular fish then? <laughs> it's you got microfish. What's regular fish? I hate it how like some of our school librarians would say microfish. Yeah. It's like oh, it's like God. Suck oh, my Dewey what? Decimal Dick. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. By May 1984, however, these new ventures had resulted in a loss of $13.8 million, and the company's stock price plummeted. When new management and reorganizations failed to alleviate the financial burden, Robinson decided to take Scholastic private. In 1986, he reestablished control over the company by creating SI Holdings Incorporated, which maintained a 51% share of the company's stock. Got him. In July 1987, SI Holdings paid $84 million for the remaining Scholastic shares. Whoa. Yeah, that's a fucking... a that, lot. That's a truckload of money. Teach. 
1986, two important children's book series were launched that would provide Scholastic with revenues over the next decade, not only from book sales, but also from related merchandise and television programming. Oh, yeah. One was the Magic School Bus series, written by Joanna Cole and illustrated by Bruce Deegan. By the late 90s, it had had 10 original titles with more than 2.4 million copies in print. That's a lot of books. That's a lot of nuts. (laughs) Um... It also ran a successful children's television series on PBS stations, which fucking, I don't know if I'll get to Magic School Bus this September, or if it'll wait for next September, but it's going to be done. It's going to happen. It has to. Yes. Carlos. Wah, wah. Um... The other series was the Babysitter's Book Club series, written by Ann Martin for young girls ages 8 to 12. By the late 90s, it had 335 titles and more than 172 million copies in print, with 12 new titles published each year. It resulted in a television series, home videos, CD-ROMs, and consumer products, as well as its own website and fan club. The Babysitter's Club movie was released in 1995 and then on video in 1996. Which, was Christina Ricci in that? I believe she was. If not, who was it? Yeah, let me look that up. Nope, totally not. Rachel Lee Cook. Oh! Skylar Fisk, Clarissa Lanick. Ah, oh, fucking Alex Mack in this motherfucker. Yeah. Hmm. Once the company was back on solid financial ground, it went public again, offering $90 million worth of stock in February 1992. Scholastic went public with its shares selling for $26 a pop. Which, fuck man, that's not really that much. Right. Uh, A year later, the stock was trading at $36 a share. In July 1992, R.L. Stein's popular Goosebump series debuted. From 1992 to 1993, Scholastic reported revenues of $552 million and a net income of $28 million. Book publishing contributed... Uh, 60, 66% of revenue and 91% of net income. Sales of the company's 28 school magazines were growing at a slower pace, and the company's payroll grew 20% to 3,700 employees at the time. Oh, damn. When many other media companies were downsizing. In 1993 to 1994, Scholastic was moving towards uh, multimedia and interactive products as well as television programming. It spent $20 million to develop its first televid- or animated television series, The Magic School Bus, which debuted in, on PBS in fall 1994. Oh, in wow. September 1993, the company started Scholastic Network, an educational online computer services, or no, computer service available on fucking AOL. <laughs> AOL keyword, Magic School Bus. <laughs> At the time, book clubs were Scholastic's biggest distribution channel, accounting for approximately half of its domestic book publishing revenue of $428 million. By 1995, trade distribution had, surpa- had surpassed book clubs as school, uh, Scholastic's largest distribution channel, due largely to the popularity of Goosebumps, which helped Scholastic realize a 21% jump in domestic book publishing and sales. That's a big jump. To $516.8 million in 1994 to 1995. <laughs> Holy shit. Scholastic was releasing one Goosebumps title a month, usually with the first printing of 600,000 copies. 
Overall revenues reached seven hundred and forty nine point eight billion or million, and a net income increased seventeen point three percent from thirty two point nine million to thirty eight point six million. That's intense. The company was also focused on building its educational publishing, with several states adopting its new instructional programs. The multimedia books, videos, and software scholastic science place programs for kids or for grades K through two generated sale of nineteen million. It was expanded to cover grades K through six and was supplemented by Scholastic Math Place, launched in April nineteen ninety four. Ugh, math. I fucking hate math. Dude, I'm terrible with numbers. In nineteen ninety five, Scholastic introduced Scholastic Literary Place in English and Spanish language versions. This elementary language arts core curriculum program was adopted by many major school districts and endorsed for use by U.S. Department of Defense schools. Oh, wow. Uh, Movie and television projects were becoming a growing part of Scholastic. Scholastic licensed some 40 consumer products related to the Magic School Bus series, ranging from clothing to toys to partners such as Hasbro and Sega. Oh, wow. Sega... The company co-produced the movie The Indian in the Cupboard, oh, classic. which was released by Paramount in the summer of 1995, as was the Babysitter's Club movie. Saw that shit in theaters. The Babysitter's Club? No, no. <laughs> fucking Indian in the Cupboard. Sure. Whatever you want to say. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, The Indian in the Cupboard, man. That was a baller movie. Some good-ass shit. We'll do, we'll do a fucking episode about that. I always wish that I had that. I know. When you fucking opened up that door and it was fucking Darth Vader fighting a T-Rex? Yeah, and then fucking RoboCop shows up. Oh it's my like, god. Damn, dude. dude, RoboCop. Fuck Ready Player One. Dude, yeah. <laughs> Indian in the goddamn cupboard. That was the original OG nostalgia bomb. <laughs> when I was like, the Avengers, the greatest crossover of all time. No. <laughs> it's Indian in the cupboard. It's Indian in the cupboard. Um, the Goosebump series was launched on Fox Television in the fall of 1995. Which I guess, that was fun. technically speaking, Carly Beth in the Haunted Mask mm-hmm. is a Disney princess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. Oh my god. As what was she's up to these days? Nothing. Probably not. No, it's not, I know for sure. Oh, not. really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I think she I think she is like a like dance instructor or something oh. like that. I, I can't remember for sure. I'll bring it up when we do the Christmas episode. Okay. Um, as a result, the company's best performing division of 1995 to 1996 was Scholastic Productions, whose sales rose 104% to $39.8 million. Holy shit. Overall, the company reported a 24% increase in revenues to $928.6 million. That's Network, a lot of millions. The net income declined to $31.9 million in fiscal 1996. It was affected by an after-tax change, or after, after-tax charge of $14.9 million due to a change in accounting standards and other factors. Hmm. Between 1992 and 1996, Scholastic had enjoyed tremendous sales and income growth, with sales increasing 493%. Fuck! And a net income rising 140%. By 1996 to 1997, the growth had slowed and the company found it necessary to make staff reductions and eliminate some operations to achieve a profitable fiscal 1998. Mm. Net income for fiscal 1997, ending May 31st, was only 336, no, 361,000 
on sales of nine hundred and sixty-six million. Mm. So it's like, Ugh. yeah, that's kind of took a bath. I'm off. taking a dive. <laughs> Uh, the company undertook several cost-cutting and reconstructing measures. More than 400 positions were eliminated as part of $25 million cost-cutting Ooh, programs. a lot of jobs. That's a lot of fucking jobs. In addition, the company closed unprofitable magazines and its French operation, improved productivity in Jefferson City, Missouri, and began subleasing 40,000 square feet of its uh, office space in New York City. It also consolidated four instructional units into one division. Hmm. For 1996 to 1997, declining sales from the Goosebump series resulted in a decrease in retail sales, with 103 Goosebumps titles in the market and 200 million dollars or 200 million copies in print. Scholastic was trying to lessen it, lessen its dependence on the series. It recently had launched two new series. Animorphs and Dear America. Oh, God, Animorphs. Animorphs. Those fucking covers. I feel like kids that hardcore read Animorphs are now furries. I can I can definitely see that. You know? Yeah. Um, licensing revenues from Goosebumps made Scholastic Productions highly profitable. Yeah. Fox Network ordered another 24 episodes from 1997 to 1998, and from 1998, 13 episodes of the Magic School Bus series were completed for a total of 52 shows. Animorphs is being adapted for television with 13 shows set to air on Nickelodeon in 1998. Hmm. Uh, which, you know, like they... Now I don't think that shit would happen where you would have a three different networks, a show on three different no, networks. No you know, no like way. it's like my network or nobody else. Uh-huh. You have a show concurrently on PBS, Fox, and Nickelodeon. Yeah. Like that's fucking wild. Oh, speaking of which, did you hear that, uh, totally not Scholastic related, but they were saying that, uh, they might reboot the Daredevil really? TV show on FX. Hmm. But not with any of the people from the, from the Netflix show. Okay. How fucking stupid is that? Very stupid. Uh, also unrelated, but in the whole vein of nostalgia... Mm-hmm. Uh, they're bringing back crank anchors. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty awesome. Uh, in September 1996, Scholastic acquired the New York-based Lecturum Publications, the largest distributor of Spanish-language books to schools and libraries. Olay. Olay. In 1997, it acquired Red House Books Limited, a uh, British children's book distributor and book club operator, making Scholastic Scholastic, making Scholastic the largest children's book publisher and distributor in the United Kingdom. Scholastic was also exploring emerging markets through its subsidiaries in Mexico, India, and Hong Kong. Oh, damn. After announcing it would ex- extend its agreement with Parachute Press to publish and manage licensing of Goosebumps, Scholastic became involved in another legal dispute with Parachute Press. And another <laughs> felt like you were going to say Parachute Pants. Oh, my God. No. <laughs> Parachute pants and like a fucking windbreaker and the mm. wind doesn't stand a chance. <laughs> yeah. It's over for the wind. It's over, wind! I have the high ground! Oh, God. <laughs> Don't try it! I will defeat you! You will try! <laughs> God. Uh... Let's... 
In another legal matter, three class action lawsuits relating to the sharp downturn in the company's stock in 1997 were consolidated in one lawsuit. The plaintiffs charged that the company made misleading statements about its earnings before announcing on February 20th, 1997, that it would have had a huge loss in the third quarter. Mm. Following the announcement, the company's stock lost about half of its market value. Oh, damn. Falling from around $69 a share to between $30 to $36 a share, which is like, Ugh. Faced with a need to improve prop profitability scholastic rebounded in fiscal 1998 net income rose to a respectable 23.6 million dollars book publishing revenues rose substantially from 64 or 645.9 million to 728.5 million and revenues from international operations increased from 178.9 million to 195.9 million for the first time, Scholastic surpassed the $1 billion mark in revenue with $1.58 billion, a 9.5% increase over fiscal 1997. Damn. In, in January 1998, Scholastic sold its Soho Group, small office and home office, of business publications for $20 million. The sale included home office computing and small business computing. Along with an outline, or along with an online site and custom publishing division, Scholastic's management deemed these to be non-core assets. <laughs> Bet Wait. they regretted that. Well, I mean, I feel like once the internet became prevalent, you didn't need books on the internet. You know what I mean? Like you could find uh, yeah information about the internet on the internet. <laughs> It feels like there's a pimp my ride joke in there. Like, <laughs> Yo, dog, we heard you like internet on the internet, so, so we put internet, internet on your internet, internet so you can internet while you internet. Yes. Yeah, there we pretty go. Pretty much. Thank you. Later in 1998, Scholastic purchased the assets of the Pages Book Fair, the second largest book fair and operator. For oh, they're just point, up book fairs left and right. You know what? There could be only one. It's true. Uh, they bought it for 10.5 million. With the, with the acquisition, Scholastic planned to increase the number of parent-teacher-run book fairs as early as fall of 1998. It also acquired the Electronic Bookshelf, EBS, in April 1998. EBS is a technology-based reading motivation management and assessment system designed for use in schools. It utilized computer-based tests on popular high-quality books and provided a method of recognizing and rewarding students for uh, reading achievements. So, like, book it, basically. Yeah, right. The Scholastic Book Fair is such a driving force to the train of, that is nostalgia that some super-quality internet posts have been made about it from Twitter to Tumblr to Instagram to Facebook. Like, not to sound dramatic... But the Scholastic Book Fair in elementary school is the most pure and genuinely happy place I've ever experienced in my life, <laughs> says a Tumblr that's, post. It's true, though. It is very I true. I mean, that's, that's not really an exaggeration. No. Or this tweet that says, Marry someone who makes you feel the way you felt during the Scholastic Book Fair week in grade school. <laughs> <laughs> Which, hell, you know what? Yeah, Goddamn shit, right. Or my fave. You ever smell the air and it smells like the fourth grade Scholastic Book Fair on a chilly Tuesday in October? Mm. Yeah. Dude, I cannot wait till the first chilly Tuesday in October. Oh, dude, I know. I love the fall so much. It's so fucking good, dude. Oh, mercy. <laughs> and Sorry, here, Tangent. Here's why the annual event creates such a, 
such a strong sentimental memory. Every year, Scholastic holds 120,000 book fairs at schools across the U.S. and more internationally. It's a lot of fucking book fairs. A lot. The company has been putting on regional fairs since the 70s and nationwide fairs since the 80s. So Gen Xers, Millennials, and Gen Zers alike grew up with the tradition of filing into the school library or gym or cafeteria mm-hmm. or a fucking auditorium or, like yeah. I said, art, art room or music room. Basically wherever they can fit, like yeah, seven right. or eight tables, you know? <laughs> uh, Those big metal rolling cases. Yes. Did you know you knew you were going to have a good week when you roll up on your school bus and you see the fucking Scholastic truck out front? Yes. You're just like, fuck, yeah, get hype. This is it. Uh, though the Scholastic Book Fair has certainly evolved since it started in the 70s, today's fairs are bigger than they used to be. Scholastic is trying to offer a more diverse selection of titles, and there is even an official app now. At its heart, it's still just a bunch of tables stacked with books, and that's why it's always been, and barring just some major unexpected demographic changes, that's what it always will be. I even like to, even though I generally stay out of the library because that's where one of my exes works, um, I still like to check out the book fair. Because, you know, it's it's one of those pure nostalgia things. And a lot of times they have... uh, Lego books. I'm a bit of a Lego maniac, and sometimes they come packed in with an exclusive minifigure. So that's a neat thing to do. Which is fucking smart. Yeah. Like, it's how they get my hard-earned ducats. I can't wait to do the Lego episode. Ugh. Just Dude. because it's just like fucking Lego maniacs at heart. Oh you know? yeah. <laughs> uh oh. I don't think so, Tim. <laughs> One of the things we do best at the Scholastic Book Fairs is help kids discover those breakthrough books. Books like Harry Potter, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, Because of Winn-Dixie, Captain Underpants, and Wonder, says Alan Boyko, president of Scholastic Book Fairs. Books like these create an insatiable appetite for reading, which (laughs) they fucking do. Uh, Part of the mission of the fair, Boyko says, is to create that insatiable appetite. The difference between a dormant reader and an engaged, enthusiastic reader is access to great books, and a lot of time spent reading self-chosen books. Yeah. The, uh, the book fair provides kids with a selection of books that they don't have to read for school and that they can select for themselves. Books that they can keep forever and dog ear and scribble in and, scribble in and otherwise mark up, which means that for a lot of kids it represents the moment that the act of reading transitions from obligation to choice. Yeah. Which really, like, think about it the first time that you're like, this is something that I'm picking out. Yeah, this is something I want to do. That's why kids' meals were cool, because, like, you got to pick, you know? Like, ultimately, it was prepackaged and everything, sure, but it was like... Yeah, but do you want a burger or do you want McNuggets? Right, right. What type of drink do you want? You know, like... You're like, fuck Do you yes. want Sprite? Do you want Coke? Dr. Pepper? Hell what? yeah. Never Dr. Pepper. I know, you hate Dr. Well, Pepper. Fucking, whatever an opposite of a stan is, that's me for Dr. Pepper. <laughs> I guess the opposite, oh my god! The opposite of a stan is yeah. a Mark David Chapman. 
Oh. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> We've cracked the fucking code. <laughs> the code has been cracked. Oh, my God. Wow. Amazing. You heard it here first, folks. Yep. <laughs> the opposite of a stan is a Mark David Chapman. <laughs> yes. Wow. Wow. And in some cases, the book pair provides that option for communities that can't offer it year-round. Scholastic book fairs are really a lifeline to book ownership, says Boyko. I remember visiting a school located in Manhattan, in the heart of New York City. The principal said how wonderful it was to have a book fair because they didn't have a bookstore within walking distance. I thought, in Manhattan? I was astonished. So we bring the store to schools, big and small, across the country. At the same time, we deliver book fairs to remote locations. (laughs) We've even delivered book fairs by bush plane and fairies. Get the fuck out of here. Which is fucking awesome, man. That is awesome. You can imagine going to Scholastic Book Fair in 1997, or 1977 experiencing basically the same thing that you would experience in 2017, 2018, yeah. 2019, but forever, basically. And that's a profoundly nostalgic idea. Having been in this business for such a long time, there is great nostalgia around book fairs, says Boyko. Everyone remembers the book fair. Do you know what else everyone remembers? Ooh, do tell. That is our fact-finding friend, Facty. Yeah. The fact in the box. Scholastic holds the perpetual... U.S. publishing rights to Harry Potter. Yeah, that's what's up. So, like, anything Harry Potter-related is classic. They're, like, they're that's their mine. Hands on. Founded in 1923 by Maurice R. Robinson, the Scholastic Art and Writing Awards, administrated by the Alliance for Young Arts and Writers, or Young Artists and Writers, have recognized more than 9 million young artists and writers and provided more than $25 million in awards and scholarships, and are the nation's longest-running art and and writing awards. Recipients of the Scholastic Arts and Writing Awards include... uh, I'm just going to name the notable ones. Okay. (laughs) Truman Capote. Boom! Francis Farmer. Uh... Sylvia Plath, Robert Redford, Andy Warhol. (laughs) So it's like, okay, take your fucking pick then. That's pretty stacked right Yeah, stacked. Uh, A truck driver named Steve Werner was given an article on Scholastic's blog in which they highlight the fact that Steve Werner has driven more than one million miles since joining Scholastic as a book fair truck driver in 1982. (laughs) Over the course of his career, more than 14.5 million cha- uh, children have had the opportunity to own their own books, thanks to Steve. Scholastic, yeah, Steve. Fuck yeah, Steve. Scholastic fell into a bit of trouble last summer when they published a very dictatory-type book on how great Donald Trump, Trump is. Oh, really? To the point that a group created a website urging Scholastic to step up and fix the situation. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's very like dick sucky about Donald uh, Trump. Yeah, he does that enough himself. He doesn't need anybody else <laughs> yes. to do it for him. Uh, there is a BuzzFeed quiz that has you virtually shop at a book fair and guesses your age and sign, but they got mine hella wrong. 
claiming that I am 21 years old and a Capricorn. <laughs> no, I'm not. Uh, it's it's the book fair is like this whole thing, man. It has it just has like a reputation that's not gonna fucking go away. Yeah, because like even with all the like the entertainment feels being so oversaturated mm-hmm. like there's so much shit that you can do oh yeah what do you choose to do and are you like i mean that's that's it's like how oh, fuck do it's I do literally this? it's all in your hands it, it, it's it like really you, fucking you, is you can share the course you're your, your own captain you're your own choose your own adventure book yes you know exactly that's all it is uh pro tip i've been choosing all the wrong choices you know well, what though mostly this choice is pretty good. And it's one of those things where it's like, life is a choose-your-own-adventure book that you can't cheat at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't skip ahead and see you know? where things go. You're like, oh, fuck, no. I don't want to get eaten by that werewolf. Better uh, skip back seven pages. Uh, damn werewolves. Damn werewolf. Wolfman's got nards. <laughs> Kick him in the nards! Kick him in the nards! <laughs> So we reached the end of another wild ride here at Toys R Us. If you like what you heard and you learned, and if you'd like to continue learning, consider doing the following. Leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple, Apple Podcasts slash iTunes. That would hype us up as much as a book fair would. It really would. It's, it's, it's a big old thing. It is. Like, I can't tell you how excited it is around the office when we find we Oh, yeah. When we review. get reviews, we're like, ooh, shit. It's like, yeah. Merry Christmas, motherfucker. Exactly. Uh, you can follow us on all social medias. We're at Toys R Us Podcast across the board. And you can support us by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Toys R Us Podcast. Until next time, remember that books are your friends in a world that remains to be completely unfriendly. And remember that you will always be a Toys R Us kid. I'd like to take the time out to thank our patrons. We couldn't do this without you. So, thank you to Jeremy, Jessica, Nicole, Amy, Nicole, Nicole, Juanita, Sabrina, Shannon, and Steven. Thanks a bunch, guys. Oh my god, Becky, look at her books. They are so big. She looks like one of those professors' girlfriends, but, you know, who understands those professors? They only talk to her because she looks like a total librarian. Okay. I mean, her books. It's just so big. I can't believe it's just so round. It's like out there. I mean, gross. Look. She's just so smart. I like big books. And I cannot lie. You other brothers can't deny. 